Let me pray again for just a second as we get started here. Father, again, we just remind ourselves in your presence that truth is spiritually apprehended. We rely on you, both your spirit this morning and the truth of your word, to show us what's true. Lord, especially uh, not only to see it, but that your truth in us bears fruit, that it does its work in us, that we see you more clearly, that we know what you're after, that our hearts are more fully given to you and the things that are important to you. So, Father, we commend ourselves to you, to your spirit, and to your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. You'd have to be living in a hole the last few weeks or so if you didn't hear in the news a couple of news stories, the one certainly more remarkable than the other, but Congressman Anthony Weiner, uh, gosh, for two or three weeks, this was front page news, you know, sort of ridiculous on one hand, of course, because of the smallness, really, of it on one hand, but, you know, this was the congressman who had uh, texted a picture of himself in his boxers or his briefs or something to some gal, not his wife. And the gal who got it, you know, somehow, I don't know how this stuff works, but it goes viral. It's all over the internet, his picture. So he's called to account. And, you know, Congressman Weiner, what's the deal? And he went through a week or two of denials. And, you know, it's everything. Somebody broke into my account. I'm not even sure that's me in the picture, etc. But, you know, the news, they're relentless. And they keep hounding in. And eventually he calls the press conference and he tells the truth. You know, yeah, it's me and that's me and I did it. And, <clears throat> and I've done it before. I'm sure to prevent further revelations down the line that might have come up since this had come up. And, you know, on one hand, you really, if you saw the press conference, you really feel for the guy because of the discomfort of the situation. He's sort of been found out. He tried to deny it, tried to get away. And eventually he comes out publicly and he says, I did that and I'm sorry. You know, and as you're seeing the press conference and as you're listening to him, you can't help but think on one hand, are these crocodile tears? That is, he's sorry. What does that mean to him? What does I'm sorry mean? Does it mean I'm sorry I got caught? Does it mean I'm sorry my life has been upended? Does it mean I'm sorry I've embarrassed my family? Or does it mean I'm sorry because I realize I've, I've just been out of line? My life's been a wreck and, and now I see that. It's unclear. I'm not sure. Uh, this last week, uh, President Obama gave a speech, I'm not sure if it was Monday or Tuesday night, but the following morning on an MSNBC talk show. Did you guys hear about this one? Didn't make near the, the headlines. Um, <clears throat> I think it's called Morning with Joe. Joe Scarborough, MSNBC. You, okay. So on the morning show after President Obama's speech, Mark Halperin, not Halpin, Halperin, uh, he's, he's Time Magazine's senior political consultant. And he's also part-time with MSNBC, another talking head on their program. This guy's been around the block a while. He knows what he's doing. And on this morning show, they're getting response to the president's speech. And they say, Mark, what do you think? And he's, he's kind of hesitating. And the, uh, Joe Scarborough and whoever his sidekick is, they're goading him. Tell us what you really think. You can see this. This is the video, of course, online too. Tell us what you really think. Go ahead, say it. He says, are we on a seven-second delay? Oh, yeah. So he calls the president a crude name. 
And it's live. It's not seven seconds delayed. And Scarborough, who's been goading him on, now says, what are you doing on live? What were you thinking? And he realizes, wow, the cat's out. I just said this. It wasn't edited out. And uh, they come back from the commercial break. And Mark Halperin is just three shades of white, you know, pale. And you know his life's just flashed before his eyes. So he says, I am really, really sorry. In fact, let me read you what he said. This is not a pro forma apology. This is an absolute apology, heartfelt to the president and to the viewers. I became part of the joke. That's no excuse. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. When I listened to him online, when I watched the video clip, I thought, this guy's really sincere. I think he really means it. I think he really thought what he said. But what his apology was, I shouldn't have said it publicly because it lowers the political discourse level. And that's what he was saying. I don't think he was saying, I I didn't think what I said. I think his deal was, I shouldn't have said it. When you watch him, there's a sense of genuineness. It looked like he really was heartfelt, sorry that he'd said it so that it was heard publicly. You know, and as you look at those two apologies, uh, political apologies online or on the TV, wherever you see them, you ask yourself the question, uh, is the sorrow genuine? Is the sorrow genuine? Because if it's genuine, genuine sorrow tends to change the way we see things, see life. It tends to change the way we interact. It affects the choices we make. Genuine sorrow does. You know, if it's just crocodile tears... Life will pretty well go on just as it had before, probably. So time will tell. Mark Halperin and Anthony Weiner, we'll see what the future holds for both of them. But sorrow should produce something, I think. We're in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5 through 16 this morning. And sorrow is a key theme in this text. There's a couple other things that we'll briefly touch base on, but we'll focus primarily on sorrow and the effects of sorrow. I'm reading from the New American Standard If you've got a study sheet, you've got the same thing in front of you. And I'll edit a little bit just as we go here for clarity. Uh, Paul continues, verse 5, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Paul's going back and he's reminding them a little bit of his travels. He'd been in what's modern-day Turkey at Ephesus. He was coming back into what's modern-day Greece, Macedonia. And he's reflecting for them the things that he was being challenged with at the time. Conflicts without, every place Paul goes there's conflict. Fears within. Paul's waiting to hear from Titus about how the Corinthian church is going to respond to him. And he's afraid. He's got some fears, some apprehensions. Verse 6, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. We'll mention this a little later, but briefly, remember, Paul wrote them a letter and he's waiting to see how they're going to respond. So Titus has come. Titus has got good news. They responded well. Titus is glad. Paul is glad. They're both comforted. He says at verse 8, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. If in anything I boasted him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Real briefly on the front end of this, um, comfort and conflict are key themes in this passage. So in verse 5, you see Paul talking about afflicted on the outside, conflicts, fears on the inside. You look at verses 6 and 7, Paul says, comforted us, God comforts the depressed, he comforted us with Titus. Titus was comforted, that meant additional comfort for us as well. I taught on this in January 30th of this year, the second message in the Second Corinthians theme, the God of all comfort, because of the passage in chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. So I'm not going to spend any time on this, frankly, this morning. But it's a key theme in the book, in the letter, and in this passage, this sense that everyone, Christian or not, in this life is going to experience conflict and challenges. And God's the source. He's the God of all comfort. That's where we get our comfort from a variety of ways. If you need to hear that, if that's important to you as you think through this passage this morning, I'll refer you back to January 30th of this year and the messages online. Where I want to park our hat this morning, though, is on the second issue, the large topic, God's sorrow, what God's sorrow does and what kind of sorrow God wants for us. You know, the truth is none of us wants to be sorry. We don't want sorrow. Sorrow is a kind of pain. It's a kind of suffering. But Paul says God is about a certain kind of sorrow, a certain kind of suffering because of what it produces. So if you look again in your text, look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, I caused you sorrow by my letter. That letter caused you sorrow. Verse 9, you were made sorrowful. You were made sorrowful. You were made sorrowful according to God. Verse 10, the sorrow that's according to God produces repentance, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You get the picture, their sorrow, their sorrow, and their sorrow. Now, related to what Paul's specifically talking about with his letter, just to give some context here, he's been at odds with the church. And you know throughout this whole letter, as we've talked, uh, Paul's facing basically a, a major rejection issue with the Corinthian church. They're not sure he's up to spec with their ideal for an apostle. So there's sort of this selling effort throughout the letter. Hey, I am your man. We talked about this last week. I'm the guy that brought you to the prom. You should be dancing with me. I'm the guy that speaks for Christ. You should be listening to me. And yet Paul's selling himself throughout this epistle. One thought is this. 
that Paul was personally opposed by some person in the Corinthian group. And he was opposed in such a way that the church around him did not reprove him, did not support Paul. And Paul had wrote what commentators call a severe letter that Titus had taken to them and which Paul was waiting to hear back how they receive it. And if that's the case, then they came to Paul's defense, as it were. They, they sided with Paul against whoever it was that was causing the offense. That's one option. The other option is that Paul was confronting the immorality that's addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul had said, hey, you've got a guy in immorality. You should have reproved him. You need to remove him from the church, and that the letter was about that. We're not entirely clear. It's not clear throughout the epistle. Paul's somewhat vague on this. But we do know he wrote the letter. He said there's an issue. It's a relationship issue between he and the church. His concern is, if you guys don't buy my view here, if you don't support me in this, you'll be compromised in your ability to hear from God because I'm God's spokesman. So it was a big deal from Paul. That's why he had those fears within, what will the church do with my letter? They need to come around and I hope they will. Now, When Paul writes them here, he says, I was sorry I made you sorry, but I'm sorry no more. I was sorry I made you sorry, but I'm sorry no more. He's thrilled now because what he calls God's sorrow has produced repentance, a change of mind in the hearts and the minds of the Corinthians. The Greek word here for sorrow is lepeo. It just means grief, pain, or mourning, it's used 15 times in this epistle and eight times in this passage. It's a big deal. God's sorrow. If you look in the dictionary, if you go to apply this, what does sorrow mean? What does that look like? Sorrow is the emotion, the regret, the pain that comes when we or someone we know suffers loss. That's the dictionary definition for the English word sorrow. It's a kind of pain or suffering. It's sometimes it's the painful realization that we are not what we should be or that God requires something we have not done or we've done something God prohibited. It's that sense of suffering, anguish, pain that's the difference between what I wanted and what I got or between what I now understand God wanted and what I've done. That's sorrow in this context, a kind of suffering. Now, there's a whole lot of sorrow going on in this passage, and Paul says he is glad there's sorrow. Now, if I said uh, my child was in pain and I was glad of it, you'd think I was a masochist because it's like, what? why would you be glad that someone's hurting? What's, what's the upside of suffering? Paul says God's sorrow, that kind of suffering, does something good in the Corinthians' lives and in yours and mine. It does two things, Paul says. It produces a change of mind our thoughts, and it affects our emotions and our will. God's sorrow does two things at least. It changes the way we think, changes our mind, our thoughts, and it changes how we feel and our will. If it's God's sorrow, that's what it does. If you look at that first one, God's sorrow brings a change of mind. We call this repentance. And Paul says that in verses 9 and 10, I rejoice that you were made sorrowful to repentance. Sorrowful to repentance. Verse 10, the sorrow that's according to God produces a repentance without regret. A a kind of sorrow and change of mind that you don't feel bad about afterwards, that you're glad for. 
Repentance is from the Greek metanoia. Uh, Meta means again or different than, and noia is thoughts. So I'm thinking again, I'm rethinking something, I'm changing my mind about it. Uh, When we say repent, we're talking about again, thinking, rethink things, same, same thought. So we're rethinking what we thought before. We're changing our mind on something. It's what we think in our head. God's sorrow, Paul says, produces repentance. It changes our thoughts. It changes what we think and what we believe. Metanoia. It also, though, it's, it's got a visceral element to it because it changes the way we feel. And it changes our will. So look at these words in verse 7 and 10 that Paul uses about the emotional response and the action response of the Corinthians to the letter he sent them. In verse 7 he says, and verse 10, he uses the term longing. His letter, their change of mind, the sorrow that brought about repentance, produced in them, Paul says, this longing. The word here is translated elsewhere, lust. It's a strong desire. They wanted to get right. Their response to Paul's letter was they longed to change and to get right, longing this very strong desire. He also says God's sorrow produced uh, mourning. This isn't I'm sorry a little. This is I have pain and anguish. This is the same word in Matthew's gospel when Herod kills all the little boys. And it says, it quotes the Old Testament, Rachel weeping for her children. That's the same word. It's deep grief and anguish. There was this emotional coming to grips for them about Paul and what their role and view towards him should have been and wasn't. There was a deep sense of grief or sorrow. He uses this word twice also, zeal. God's sorrow produced zeal. This is the same word we get jealousy from. Jealous comes from the Greek zeal. This strong emotion to do right. This zeal, jealousy towards Paul. This energetic desire. If you go to verse 11, I think it's 11. I thought it was 10. Maybe it's 11. God's sorrow produced earnestness. And this means haste and diligence. It means I have something to take care of and I'm not going to put it off to tomorrow. I'm going to make sure I get it done and I'm going to do it now, today. Earnestness. God's sorrow produced vindication. This is the Greek apology. The Corinthians wanted to make sure that they were square with Paul. Based on that letter, they've had sorrow, they've changed their mind, they want to make sure they get right with Paul, that they can vindicate themselves before God and before Paul. Um, He says God's sorrow produced indignation. This is more that thought of much pain and much grief, not a little bit, but a real emotional anguish. Uh, God's sorrow also produced fear. We usually don't want to be fearful people either, and generally that's a good thing. But in this case, God's sorrow produced a fear. And I think it was a fear, a realization that they were on the wrong side of the issue and they were on the wrong side of God because of their opposition to Paul. And the last there, God's sorrow produced avenging. This is the word for justice. They wanted to do the right thing. So they get Paul's letter and there's this sense of, Our mind has been changed based on sorrow. And our emotions and our will has been affected and has been changed because of the sorrow, God's sorrow, 
introduced by Paul's letter, and it's changed everything. It's turned our world upside down. We've repented. We've thought things through again. We've changed our mind. Our emotions are changed. Our will and our actions are changed. So God's sorrow produced repentance. You see this same call in Matthew 3, 8. You know, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preaching repentance, uh, the kingdom of God's near, repent, come and be baptized, and he sees the Pharisees coming out, and he knows these guys, and he believes they're hypocrites. And so he says, why are you coming out? You know, are you crying crocodile tears, or do you have real sorrow? Is there real repentance? And so he says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're genuinely sorry, guys, there should be some external display of that. It should be seen in the way you act, the things you say, your emotions and your will, not just what you say has changed in your mind. There should be repentance, a change of life. You know, it's one thing to say I'm sorry. It's another thing to be sorry. One thing to say it, another thing to do it, to be it. If you have little children, and if little Johnny hits little Sally, you know, as a parent, you generally say, now, Johnny, go to Sally and tell Sally you're sorry you hit her. Now, that's good on the outside as far as that goes. But the truth is you want more for Johnny than he just says the words because you don't want him to do it again. You want his mind to change. You don't want him to just say the words. You want Johnny to understand, I shouldn't hit my sister. That's not a good thing. You want Johnny to have a sorrow that's not just his words, lip service, not just crocodile tears, but that he gets it, that his mind is changed. So his emotions are changed. So his actions are changed. You want Johnny to understand why hitting Sally is not a good thing. You want real repentance. Now I want to switch gears to the fruit of God's sorrow, to the theme of repentance itself. See, Paul's glad, he says, that they were sorry. He's glad there was sorrow, but he's only glad because it did something. He's not a masochist, and it's not just sorrow for sorrow's sake. It's sorrow that takes you someplace. And Paul says the thing that's important is repentance. Sorrow that re produces repentance is a good thing. Here's a couple of verses from Ezekiel 14. God says through Ezekiel, uh, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. Think again. And turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. In Ezekiel's day, idolatry was a huge deal with Israel. While they're in captivity, Ezekiel's a, a prophet in Babylon. And Jerusalem's still standing during part of his tenure in Babylon, and it's fallen during the rest. And the Jews are still practicing idolatry in the temple before it falls, while Ezekiel is in Babylon in captivity already. And God says through Ezekiel, guys, repent, change your thoughts, and then change your actions. Turn away from the idols you've been going to and serving. Change your thoughts and change your actions. In Ezekiel 18.32, this is a great verse for a number of reasons. It touches on the theme of repentance. But you know, in a day in which uh, Christians are, are convoluted over the teaching about hell, we've talked about this just briefly numerous times in the recent past, is there a hell? Is there a real hell? You know, there's a Christian writer with a book out that says there's no hell. Uh, love wins and nobody ever actually ends up in, in hell. And if you hold to the the traditional orthodox view that there's an eternal heaven and there's an eternal hell, you're castigated as representing a very small-minded, mean-spirited God. 
And yet, of course, the God of the Bible says, and Jesus, the Redeemer of the earth, says, there's a hell. So what do you do with that? Ezekiel 18.32, God says this, and he says this repeatedly in Ezekiel. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, but that they repent and live. God's absolutely just, and that's reflected in the crucifixion of his son. That's justice. That's our sins on him, our substitute. That's justice. So God's deal is, he says through Ezekiel, repent and live. That's my desire. I want you to change your thoughts. I want you to turn around because you'll get life. I take no pleasure when someone dies, God says. That's the deal. So in Ezekiel's day, it's guys, change your thoughts, change your thinking, and then turn around and get away from the idols because in doing so, you get life. And that's what I want for you. So repent, he says. When Jesus begins his public ministry, almost the first words out of his mouth in Matthew 4, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is coming to a nation at odds with God, very religious. God's people, very religious, but their heads are in the wrong place. Their emotions are in the wrong place. Their will is in the wrong place. And Jesus comes along and says, Israel's Messiah says, repent, change the way you think. Think again. Get on board with what God's priorities are. And in Luke 24, at the end of Jesus' ministry on the earth, he says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus' message was about repenting, changing the way we think, changing our thoughts, because in repentance we get life. So it's a huge theme throughout all the Bible. Now, God commands repentance on one hand. God says, repent. You guys change. You know, the upside too, though, is that God gives repentance. I'm glad for this. God doesn't just say, do it. He enables it. He gives it. So if you look in Acts 11, verse 18 is the verse. But this was when Peter, the apostle Peter had gone into the house of the Gentile Cornelius and this was in the early days of the church, and they're still grappling. We're Jews. What does that look like? What's our relationship to the law? What's our relationship to Gentiles? Because the law forbid Jews to go into the house of a Gentile. They became ceremonially unclean. Gentiles were unclean. So Peter has gone into the house of a Gentile. And while he's there, the Holy Spirit comes down on Cornelius and his family, the same as the Spirit had done to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. So Peter comes back to the guys in Jerusalem and he tells them the story. Guys, this is what I did. I went into the house of a Gentile. And they're like, hold on, Pete, slow down. That's not what we're about. We're Jews. God works with the Jews. You don't belong in the house of a Gentile. And Peter retells the story. Well, this is what happened. God told me to go. I went. I start telling them what God wants me to say. And the Spirit falls the same on them as he did to us. What was I to do? I can't oppose God, right? And so the conclusion is, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God gave them repentance that brought them to life. You say, on one hand, God commands repentance, but on the other, he gives repentance. You see the same thing in Romans 2, verse 4. I love this verse. Paul says, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. God is so kind. And his kindness is expressed in his patience with us, Paul says in, in Romans 2 here. 
And Paul says God's being patient because he's leading you to repentance, to a change of mind. So on one hand, God commands repentance. And on another, he provides repentance. And in this whole arena, repentance is needed basically, guys, by everybody. So folks who are not in relationship with God through Christ, they need repentance. Non-Christians need repentance. In Acts 2, 27 and 28, the day of Pentecost when Peter's preaching to the Jewish crowd there that's there, and he tells them, um, you have crucified your Messiah. God sent his Messiah, the descendant of David, you crucified him. And as Peter preaches, it says they were pierced to the heart. That's sorrow. The truth of Peter's words goes through them like a knife. And they have this deep anguish. They have this zeal. They're feeling the same things the Corinthians did. And they say, what must we do? We get it now. Our mind is changed on who Jesus is and why he was here and what we did to him. So now, Pete, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. You rejected Christ, you must embrace Christ and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The truth convicts them, pierces them. They've got this sorrow God is after. And Pete says, repent, change your thoughts and embrace Christ now and live. You see this also in Acts 26, 20 when Paul's before King Agrippa and he's talking to him about Christ's call, the conversion, Paul's own conversion, what God was doing through him. And Paul says to the king that Christ had commissioned him that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That through Paul, Christ was calling Gentiles to repent. This was a big thing. You know, you see this in Acts 17 when Paul goes to Athens, to the Areopagus, and he's, he's discussing and he's presenting Christ to the Greeks. And if you were a Jew, you were this odd religious sect in a little dusty corner of the Roman Empire. You weren't significant and big and important. And you're talking about your God. This was a big, big uh, bite to swallow. This was a big deal. Why should the Romans believe this? And Paul says, you need to repent. You need to change your thoughts about this Jewish Messiah because he's actually the maker of heaven and earth and your relationship eternally stands or falls based on him, you need to repent, change your mind, your view towards this Jewish Savior. Christians need God's sorrow that leads to repentance. So in Revelation 3, verse 19, Jesus writes to each of the churches, you know, and he gets to the last church, Laodicea. I think it's the church most like us today. You know, he says to this church, gosh, you got all this stuff. You've got money, you've got goods, you've got food, you've got air conditioning, you've got good cars, nice appliances, lovely homes. He says, but what you don't have is you don't have the truth and you don't have life. And in this picture, you remember at Laodicea, the church, each church belongs to Jesus, but Jesus is outside the church knocking at the door to his home, right? He's been shut out and excluded. So to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I... Those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is to the church. This is to Christians. This is to the church today. 
Jesus knocks on the door and says, repent, think again, you're valuing the wrong things. You think you're wealthy? Jesus says, in my eyes, you're in poverty. I've got real wealth, embrace me again. Bring me in from the cold, just like Paul. Shut out, we're not sure you're, you're the one we're after. Jesus knocking on the door saying to them, repent. You see the same thing in Matthew 26. You know, uh, Peter was confident before the crucifixion. He's Jesus' man, you remember? Lord, if everybody else forsakes you, not me. I'm your man, you can count on me. And he believed it. And Peter was a great guy, a stand-up guy in so many ways. Uh, but he failed, of course. And in Matthew 26, you know, you read that uh, Peter remembered the word Jesus had said, Pete, you'll deny me three times tonight. Peter couldn't believe it was true, couldn't believe he'd ever do that, but he does. And it says of Peter, he went out, he wept bitterly. Peter, these weren't crocodile tears. Peter was pierced to the heart. He was sorry for what he'd done. Couldn't believe what he'd done after the fact. And he repented. And Jesus restores him, you see, in John 21. Restores him and he says, Pete, get back up and get on with my program. You're my guy. Feed my lambs. Tend the flock. Feed the church. You're my guy. Real repentance with Peter. You see a different kind of sorrow in verse 10. Paul doesn't dwell on this, but he says, the world's sorrow produces death. You and I can have a kind of sorrow that does not produce anything of value. And in contrast to Peter in Matthew 26, you've got Judas. And Judas betrays Jesus. He does something similar that Peter. Peter denies Jesus. Judas sells Jesus. But it's both a denial of Christ. And when Judas sees that Jesus has been condemned to death, it says he felt remorse. There was a sorrow. There was an anguish. There was I'm sorry for what I did kind of attitude or emotion. But it didn't take him to life. He hung himself instead. So Judas is a guy alienated from God already. Jesus has said in the Gospels, I chose all 12 of you, but one of you doesn't belong to me. He knows. He's alienated from God already. And the sorrow he experiences when he sees what they're going to do to Jesus, it doesn't produce life. He's already alienated, and he takes his life and alienates himself further from God. So in Matthew's gospel, you see this great contrast between Peter with genuine repentance, a real sorrow that produces a change of mind and action, and you've got Judas with a different kind of sorrow that doesn't produce any life. They're just death. There's death, and there's more death. You know, for Christians, I think more often than not, where this comes to roost for us has to do with those areas in our life that aren't what they should be. The Romans 7 areas of our life where we say to ourselves or we say to the Lord, Lord, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. Or Lord, I know those things that I shouldn't do, and that's what I do. And Paul describes that conundrum in his own life. I, I'm sick. And what we need in those circumstances, we need God's sorrow that affects our thoughts and our emotions and our will because we don't see things God's way or we would make different choices. So when you see yourself as a Christian in Romans 7 where we're not living up to the things we're called to, where we're with the Corinthians rejecting God's guy or God's provision or God's commands, if your heart's not in the right place, if your mind's not in the right place, we can ask, we can say, God, you're kind, 
your patient? Would you give me the sorrow that brings repentance? Would you give me your perspective on things so that I think your thoughts, I feel your emotions, and I act in accordance with what your will is because that's life. But for all of us as Christians, we need the kind of sorrow, God's sorrow, that ends up affecting the way we think, what we believe is true. Viscerally, what we feel, what we respond to emotionally, that all affects the actions we take, the decisions we make. So God's sorrow produces repentance that Paul says gives us more life. There's a, there's a separate kind of sorrow, the I'm sorry kind of sorrow that Paul says it just brings more death. We want God's kind of sorrow. Let me close, wind down with two examples of this real briefly. One's in Second Kings 22. In King Josiah's day, he's one of the great kings of Judah. You know, Judah has several good kings. He's one of them. And under Josiah, there's reforms beginning, and he tells the guys, we need to repair the temple. It's in shambles. And as they do, they find the book of the law. We think it's the book of Deuteronomy. Because the guys come to the king and they say, by the way, look what we found in the temple. And they read it. And Josiah's world turns upside down. The knife goes through his heart. He says, guys, we are in trouble. Because we're in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. He said, if we obey him, we get blessing. If we disobey, we get cursing. And all we've done is disobey him. We're under his curse. And he tears his robes. And he sends his guys to the prophet because he's like, Lord, we're, we're in trouble. What do you want us to do? They hadn't been living according to the law. They hadn't even known what the law was in his day. They were so given to living like the Gentiles. And so God says to Josiah, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard when I, that I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, you've torn your clothes, you've wept before me, godly sorrow, godly repentance, Truly I've heard you. And God basically tells him, Josiah, the curse will not fall in your day. The curse will still fall. But because you were humble, because you listened to my word, because you were genuinely sorry and you repented for yourself and the nation, this will not occur in your day. I'm going to bless you in your day instead. We know Josiah was fervent and real in the sorrow because it says he re-upped in the covenant with God, with Yahweh. And the nation does so with him. And they go through the nation and they purge the nation of idolatry because it was throughout the whole nation. It was real. Real sorrow, godly repentance, it affected a change. And last, in Daniel, Daniel 9, we won't look at that, don't have time to this morning, but in Daniel 9, Daniel also gets part of the Bible of his day. He gets part of the scroll of Jeremiah. And God had told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, 70 years are appointed for your nation to be in Babylon, in captivity. And Daniel does the math and he says, the years are almost over. 70 years are almost up. And in one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible, Daniel humbles himself before God and he sorrowfully confesses his own sins and the sins of the nation. And God ends up coming through and coming and telling Daniel, giving him more revelation. Jeremiah 70 years, and God tells Daniel, because of his piety, because of his sorrow, because of his repentance, tells him things for the future again. Seventy-sevens, Daniel, are appointed for your people. And he goes into one of the most important uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about the future. 
Daniel was God's man. And you know, on the 4th of July weekend, I love this too, Daniel was a real patriot in the best sense of the word. Daniel loved God and he loved his nation. And Daniel 9 is a great example for us. On the 4th of July weekend, on the weekend we remember independence of the United States of America, this great country we live in today. What a great time to join the Daniels and get on our knees before God and confess our own sins. Lord, we're not what you've called us to be. We have failed in what we've said and what we've not said and what we've done and what we've not done. Lord, we have genuine sorrow before you for failing to be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, we live in a nation that's done the same thing, just like Daniel with Israel. Our nation, you know, founded on lofty heights, city on a hill. You know, seriously, that's what those pilgrims, those guys that came across, they really believed they were instituting, they were working to create God's kingdom on earth. That's what they thought they were doing. They wanted to be the city on a hill. They wanted to be a light to the nations. And we have come from lofty heights. And we're not quite up there anymore. We've fallen from those lofty heights. Just as Israel did. Just as the Corinthians did. They blew it. What better weekend could we humbly get on our knees before God and say, Lord, we have blown it. As individuals, we've blown it. As the church, we've blown it. As a nation, we've blown it. And we sorrowfully, repentantly call out to you in your kindness and your patience and say, Lord, would you come in and would you heal us again? Would you change our thoughts? Would you change our heart? Would you change our emotions? Would you make us who and what you meant us to be? Great weekend to do that. Great weekend to join Daniel. God's sorrow, God's sorrow, not the sorrow of the world, not crocodile tears, God's sorrow produces repentance that leads to life and that's what we want to be about let's pray here just as we close Father God we are not what we should be Lord we never have been and until we're fully redeemed and we're shed these mortal bodies Lord and we have put on the new body that we share with Christ that new life fully Lord we'll never be on this earth what you've called us to be Lord, we sin in thought, word, and deed, in omission and commission. Lord, we are like the church at Laodicea. We are like ancient Israel. We are, Father, like the Corinthians. And Lord God, we humbly ask you for your sorrow over our sins, and the sins of your church, and the sins of this great nation. Lord, would you give us your thoughts, your perspective, your view, your mindset, Would you give us the sorrow that brings real change, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of emotion, Lord, a change of action and will. Father God, would you bless your people again? Would you bless the church? Would you pour out conviction and repentance? Lord, would you help us as the church to be Christ here and now? in the nation you've set us in. Lord, would you help us as the church to send out others to other parts of the world that do not yet know you fully, have not clearly heard the gospel that saves or the message that brings sorrow, that brings repentance and life.
Lord, for any who don't yet know you, you are a patient and loving God. And I just pray that they would feel your kindness this morning. I pray they would feel your appeal through Christ, your Son, that you've loved them enough to die for their sins. And Lord, would they receive and accept your Spirit, your forgiveness this morning in the full redemption we have and enjoy in Jesus Christ. And Lord, with John at the end of the book of Revelation and the end of the Bible, we would just say this morning, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.